Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, I guess today is Carolyn Ung, PhD. She's a, an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Microbiology at University of Nebraska Medical Center. So, Carolyn, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you would tell me about uh, your research, what are you working on? Uh, my lab works on malaria, and we're seeking to understand drug resistance mechanisms. So, so malaria, um, malaria, when it gets to people, or is it when it's still in the mosquito? Or that's a good question. So uh, malaria is caused by a parasite, and this parasite needs two different hosts to survive and to complete its life cycle. So, as you mentioned, there's a stage in the mosquito. And upon a bite from an infected mosquito, the parasite is transmitted into humans. First, the parasite travels to the liver, where it establishes a liver stage. And then after about two weeks, it, uh, these parasites get released into the bloodstream, where they infect red blood cells. And that's the stage that I study, so only the asexual blood stages. And at some point, these parasites in the blood will receive a signal to commit to sexual differentiation. And these sexual forms are then taken up by a mosquito when it bites an infected human, and they can recombine sexually within the mosquito. Uh, and then the, the cycle goes on and on. What does the parasite look like? Is it a single cell or is it multi-cell? Is it a, you know, how many of them do people have when they get it? Yeah, so the, the parasite is a protozoan, so it's a single-celled parasite, but it's a eukaryote, meaning that it has all the internal organelles that human cells have, so like a nucleus, a mitochondria, um, the Golgi apparatus, the ER, things like that. And it also has an additional organelle called epicoplast, which is derived from double endosymbiosis of an algae a long time ago. What does that mean? What does it allow it to do? What is, what, what is the structure inside it related to? Are you asking about the various structures or are you asking about the apicoplasm specifically? Yeah, the last structure you just mentioned, you said it quickly. What, what does it do? What is its function? Oh, okay. So it's important for heme and isoprenoid and fatty acid biosynthesis. It allows the parasite to survive. Right, so the parasite's able to use energy as food certain substances that we are not or what does it do in plain speak what does this extra organelle do um well so like in humans so the parasite functions in a way that's similar to humans so it requires amino acids to make proteins and for example even in humans we also we have fatty acid synthesis so we for example, all our lipid membranes are made out of phospholipid bilayers, which are which consists of fatty acids. So okay. in the parasite, it also has membranes, and so you, you need these fatty acids. Okay, I just didn't know if it had um, 
I guess it appears to have many special abilities that our cells don't have. So, so when it it's in our um, it's in our blood, is it literally inside of our red blood cells, or is it just in our blood mixture? No, it, it only invades the red blood cells. So, uh, you asked about the numbers of the parasites. Um, so when so there are different forms of the parasite, and it looks different in in di the different stages. So when it's in a mosquito ready to be transmitted to a human. Uh, these parasites live in the salivary glands of the mosquito and they're called sporozoites and they look like um, little worms, little fat worms. When they get injected into a human, it first goes into your skin and then they find their way through into the microcapillaries. And from there, they home into your liver cell. So they transmigrate through Cooper cells, which are liver macrophages. And then when they find a suitable host cell, a suitable hepatocyte, which is a liver cell, they form a vacuole around themselves to protect themselves from the host. And so within okay. this liver cell, they, this one sporozoite then differentiates and it then multiplies. So one sporozoite becomes 10,000 merozoites that will be released into the bloodstream where each merozoite can infect a red blood cell. And then when that merozoite infects a red blood cell, it progresses through the blood stage from rings to trophozoites to schizonts and schizonts then rub, get re released and the mer merozoites get released and each merozoite can then infect a new red blood cell. So within the asexual red blood cell cycle, one parasite can produce up to 24 to 32 merozo daughter merozoites. Oh, wow. You can see what, that it, it's um, exponential amplification. What happens to the functioning of the red blood cells that have the parasite in them? Are they still able to, um, you know, exchange oxygen and do their other jobs? Um, I would assume that it's impaired because when, par when these parasites get into the red blood cell, they digest the hemoglobin that's in the red blood cell. Oh, wow. So I guess the red blood cells become useless after a time? Yes. So the, they, they have to digest hemoglobin to, for two reasons. One, um, as I mentioned, they, they are just like us. They need amino acids to build, to build protein. And, and so they digest the, he, the hemoglobin in the red blood cell to derive the amino acids as building blocks for their proteins. And they also have to digest it because hemoglobin is the major protein within mature red blood cells, and they require the space within the red blood cells. So it's, they have to digest it to create space for themselves. What happens to uh, red blood cells don't divide, so far as I know? They go to the spleen to be taken up and eaten and killed, or what happens to them? Uh, dead red blood cells or old red blood cells, you mean? Yes. Yeah, they get cleared by the spleen. So that, that's actually really interesting. So parasites have evolved this mechanism of not being cleared by the spleen. And so in humans infected with malaria parasites, their red blood cells display this phenomenon called rosetting, which means that an infected red blood cell and uninfected red blood cells slump together. And parasites also increase the cytoadherence of the red blood cells that they're in, meaning that now these blood, these um, cells are able to stick to the endothelial lining, so the lining of your blood vessels, so that they don't get washed away into the spleen. The, the infected red blood cells or um, 
this is only while the red cells are infected. Like what happens after they're infected? Do they then slough off and go to the spleen? Oh, so after they're infected, the red blood cells actually lice when merozoites are released. Okay, I see what you mean. The release of parasites uh, um, also releases all these debris, and that's what causes the classical symptoms of malaria, which is fever and chills. But wouldn't people get temporary clots, you know, in small capillaries and places like that, as the, uh, the you know the blood the infected red blood cells adhere to the endothelium? Yeah, you can. So um, there's a range of symptoms of malaria. So when you get infected, you can get a mild, you can just get mild symptoms where you feel malaise and you have these characteristic cyclical fevers and chills. Um, but it can also be really severe. And if you have a lot of parasites in your blood, that's exactly what happens. So Basically, in your microcapillaries within your organs, it can cause organ failure. So you can start having, for example, cerebral malaria, um, or you can have placental malaria, and and these are complications from from it basically blocking. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's, it's complicated. So okay, how long does it take? How long is this infection stage from when it gets into the blood cell, the red blood cells, until it lyses them? How long does that take? Or do they build up first? And then so is there like the, a quorum sensing and then they attack? Hmm, there's a couple questions in there. So it takes about, so each uh, different parasite strains have different timings, but in general, so some of them are, most of the falciparum strains I work with are on a 48 hour cycle, but it can range depending on the parasite strain. Okay, so you said that they'll, um, they'll infect red blood cells. They'll eat them, they'll lice them, and more and more, you know, accumulate until um, you said then there's suddenly a signal where they get to change their, their way of doing things. Like what is that signal and what happens? So the signal, there's a couple of things that, that um, signal that. So nutrient deprivation can cause them to commit to sexual differentiation. Uh, sometimes antimalarial drugs cause that. And... Um, it's a, it's a switch on one of the genes in the plasmodium parasite itself. So what happens when they go to the, um, the sexual stage? Does that ever happen in people? Or it preferably happens in mosquitoes only when they bite them and take them no, back into themselves? No, no. So it, it has to happen in people. So they replicate asexually within the blood, multiplying every 48 hours. And then when they commit to sexual differentiation, they actually decide right early on when they invade, that's when the commitment already starts. So uh, when they, you remember when I, when they invade, they become rings, trophozoites, schizons, and then merozoites are released. And the interesting thing is that we see that this commitment happens in the ring stages. So in the first stage of the asexual blood stages. And uh, so once it invades, it knows it's actually going to become a gametocyte, which is the sexual stages. And, and there are female and male uh, gametocytes, and these will just be in your blood. And then when a mosquito happens to bite you, it will take up parasites that happen to be gametocytes. And these, these sexual forms can then recombine into the, in the mosquito. Are people who are infected more attractive to mosquitoes? Has anyone studied whether they're, um, they're giving off pheromones or other chemical signals that attract mosquitoes to them more than others? Uh, that's a really good question. Hmm. 
So I read a study that showed that mosquitoes in the jungle prefer biting animals, but mosquitoes in urban areas prefer biting humans. I don't, don't know. know if, it's okay. I just wonder. Yeah, I don't know if mosquitoes really know hone in because they're not trying to get infected by the malaria parasite. So the mosquito, the so only female mosquitoes bite. And they only feed when they are pregnant. So when they have babies, when they have eggs, that's when they feed on blood. Okay. So what um, what aspect of malaria are you trying to figure out? What questions are you trying to answer? So there are five species of plasmodium that cause malaria in humans. And of those five, plasmodium falciparum is the most virulent. And it causes the most number of deaths. It's very prevalent in Africa, but it's also found in Asia and South America. And, and the, the thing about these parasites is that we have lots of antimalarial drugs. And our first line of drug treatment at the moment is artemisinin-based combination therapies. So this is a very potent drug called artemisinin. But... Uh, these drugs are short-lived, and so they need to be partnered with a longer-lasting drug to, to uh, make sure that all the parasites are cleared from your body. And unfortunately, what we've been seeing in Southeast Asia is that there has been um, a decrease in the ability of these drugs, these artemisinins, to clear parasites. So there's a delayed parasite clearance. Uh, so we are worried because we, uh, we've lost other drugs before due to parasite drug resistance. And we're worried that this is a signal or a herald that this is the beginnings of drug resistance to artemisinins. So what my lab and what other labs around the world are really trying to understand is what's causing this artemisinin resistance. And if we can understand that, we can then start to design drugs that either synergize, uh, that, that work together with that pathway, or to, to sort of find an Achilles heel in the parasite so that we don't lose this very, very important drug. So what does the resistance look like? These anti-malarial drugs you're talking about, like what's their mechanism of action? And then what does the resistance look like? How can you tell that you know, someone's malaria is resistant to their drug. Besides them, obviously not feeling better, but... Yeah, that, that's actually how you tell. So um, for other drugs, so for example, chloroquine was used as an antimalarial for a very long time, and it's still used in certain parts of the world where there isn't resistance to chloroquine. But for many, many parts of the world, there are chloroquine-resistant parasites, and so that drug is essentially useless in those regions. And basically, that means that if you have a chloroquine-resistant parasite, if you treat with chloroquine, the parasites still um, remain in your body and you will continue to be sick. Uh, For that, we know that chloroquine inhibits a process in the parasite. So when when parasites digest hemoglobin, uh, heme is released, and heme is really toxic to parasites and to all organisms. And so what they need to do is detoxify that heme and chloroquine inhibits the detoxification process. Uh, and, and for that, resistance to chloroquine, for example, is, um, 
is rendered by mutations in a transporter in the malaria parasite that transports the drug out of the out of the digestive vacuole so that the drug can no longer interfere with this process. So that's pretty straightforward because there's one gene that's involved, multiple mutations to that gene confer resistance. Now for artemisinin resistance, we're still trying to figure that out. So, and we still don't really know how it kills the parasite, but there are several theories. So it seems that when, so artemisinin is, um, just a really beautiful drug. It, it actually acts like a pro-drug. So the key moiety of this compound is an endoperoxide bridge. And when the drug gets into the parasite, as I mentioned, the, the parasite digests hemoglobin and releases heme. Uh-huh. So the heme actually will break that endoperoxide bridge. And now the drug is active. And so Basically, you can see a differential kill. You can see a differential um, potency of this drug in, for example, parasites that digest hemoglobin and parasites that do not digest hemoglobin. So it's very specific for hemoglobin digesting parasites. So, so what? What um, you said heme is toxic. Um, is it because it's very iron rich? Is that where the iron and hemoglobin is? And like, what makes it toxic? Uh, yeah. So. It's toxic because it's very reactive. So the iron is, there's unpaired electrons in that, in that molecule. Mm, okay. And so it's very reactive and it will, it will cause reactive oxygen species to, to accumulate. And that's not good for our cells. So what does the, um, the parasite do? Does it package the heme inside of like a separate vacuole to isolate it or? You know, what does it do and how does the heme get out of our body? It doesn't get out. So, uh, so, oh, okay. so when the heme is released through hemoglobin digestion, uh, the heme is converted into a different form and then it gets, poly- it gets, um, it's, it, it basically gets polymerized. And so it, it gets packaged into this form that is now inert. And actually, way before they even knew that malaria was caused by parasites, they could see this pigment. You can see this yellow pigment under a light microscope, and they called this the malaria pigment. So now we know it's, it's hemozoan. Okay, that's what the, uh, the polymers call the hemozoan? Yes. Oh, huh, okay. So what happens if this builds up in someone? Like, where does it build up? There's inside the blood vessels, uh, are there preferential spots for it? Uh, it would be within the digestive vacuole of the parasite. But basically, this hemozoan is inert. It doesn't do anything. Okay, I gotcha. To answer your earlier question, so heme will activate, free heme will activate artemisinin or artemisinin-like compounds. And that basically allows non-specific alkylation of parasite proteins. And we think that because you now have this additional group, additional chemical group, on proteins that hinders the ability of these proteins to function properly. And that's how we think the parasites die, among other other theories. So is uh, chloroquine administered with artesamine or, or are they separate? Does uh, yeah, chloroquine help the action of artesamine? No, they're separate. Sorry, I just brought that up to show that, that we used to have a really good drug and there's resistance and now we can't use it. So we don't want that to happen with artemisinin. Oh, and you asked me about how 
what is what is the clinical manifestations of artemisinin resistance? It's basically just delayed parasite clearance times. So if a parasite is sensitive to the drug, it, the parasites will be cleared within three days. And if it's not, it, the parasites will remain after three days. So you can, you can take a blood smear, uh, you can take a, a blood sample from a patient and look at that under the microscope and you'll be able to see, are there parasites or are they not parasites? And if there are, then you know that your, uh, these parasites are resistant to the drug. So eventually they do get cleared. I would like to make that known. Like, so eventually they do get cleared and um, there hasn't been any deaths from artemisinin resistant malaria. So what happens in the normal course of malaria if it can't be treated? The parasites build up and build up and starve the person of the ability to carry oxygen to their cells and kills them? Yeah, you, yeah. Sometimes you can die. Sometimes, so it depends. Um, it depends on your immunity. So someone's immune system can control it. If you are able to control it, then it will. Re- you can eliminate these parasites. But if you're unable to eliminate them, then it can be severe and lethal. Are there therapies where you take the person's blood and pass it through an external filter? And then put it back into their body, you know, and then, you know, the filter is comprised of, let's say, it has I don't know, chloroquine embedded in it or some other compound or can it be heated or treated some way with UV light or, you know, are there any therapies like that? Where, since they reside in the blood vessels, I mean, sorry, in the red blood cells, perhaps there are therapies like that. No, we don't, we don't think about those therapies. So one of the things we think about, um, we, we try to keep in mind when we develop antimalarial therapies is that most of the burden of malaria occurs in countries that are, um, that are poorer. And so re- what, what's really important is that each dose of antimalarial therapy has to be less than a dollar. And even then it's quite unaffordable. And so if you're talking about taking blood and purifying, I mean, it won't work for scientific reasons, but also... Like that process is too expensive. I see what you mean. So you need a, a cheap therapy. You, you, yeah, you need a cheap therapy because it unfortunately is ravaging countries that are not very rich. So you, you can't think of a expensive therapy. Mm, I see. So what are your uh, near-term goals for your research in the next you know, couple of years? What big questions do you want to answer? So we would really like to contribute to the... The communities, the scientific community's understanding of what is uh, causing this artemisinin resistance because it's not quite pinned down yet. And we're looking to develop some new therapies that are uncompromised by existing resistance mechanisms. So that's really important because uh, if parasites are already resistant to a certain mechanism, you they can sometimes be resistant to a drug that they've never seen. So we call this cross-resistance. And that's quite, uh, you can imagine that's quite problematic. So you don't want to spend all this time and money. I think it's, can't remember the numbers. I think it's something like it takes a billion dollars in 10 years to develop a drug. And so you don't really want to spend all that time if, you, if at the end of the day, it's just going to fail in the real world. So what I see my lab contributing is how do we lay the foundation on, on the basic science side of trying to understand how do these parasites gain resistance and what 
sorts of mechanisms are involved and then how do we find drugs that don't target these mechanisms or can we exploit these pathways to develop even more potent drugs? Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more and get in contact with uh, you know, your lab or your university? Oh, that is a great question. You can find me on the UNMC website. I believe if you search for UNMC and Caroline Ung and G, you can find me or you can, they are free to email me at caroline.ng at unmc.edu. I also have a Twitter and an Instagram page, which admittedly I don't update a lot. Uh, that's unglab, N-G-L-A-B underscore malaria for both of them. Yeah. And if anyone okay. has any further questions, I'd love to chat with them. Well, very good. Catherine, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for this interview. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.